This morning we have our next sermon in our covenant sermon series. And one of the things that has been fun for me in preaching this series is the chance to get to research and learn about things I didn't know existed. One of them is the salt covenant. The salt covenant is in scripture. I blipped by it the last few times I read, but it's there and it is meaningful. And learning and hearing about it helps us understand Jesus's words about salt a little bit better. So today when Chuck comes up to read, you will hear two scriptures from the Hebrew scriptures that reference a covenant of salt. And then you will hear the words of Jesus. And as you listen, reflect on how they might connect together. The scripture reading this morning is from the Old Testament. First from Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. And also from Numbers chapter 18, verses 8, and also 19 and 20. And then from the New Testament, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, all from the Common English Bible translation. A reading from the book of Leviticus. You must season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not omit the salt of your God's covenant from your grain offering. You must offer salt with all your offerings. A reading from the book of Numbers. The Lord spoke to Aaron. I now place you in charge of my gifts, including all the Israelites' sacred offerings. I have given them to you and your sons as an allowance. All the holy gift offerings that the Israelites raised to the Lord, I have given to you, your sons and your daughters. This is a permanent regulation. It is a covenant of salt forever in the Lord's presence for you and your descendants. The Lord said to Aaron, you will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have a share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. A reading from the gospel according to Matthew. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on the top of a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand, and it shines on all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. The word of God for the people of God. The first time I really ever recall thinking about salt as something other than, say, just seasoning for food is in 
eighth grade science class. We were doing a unit on um, rocks and minerals, and my science teacher had a collection of rocks and minerals to pass around for us to feel and look at. And he had a little block of salt. And so we were learning about the properties of salt, and salt is cubic. And we passed it around and held it. And he invited those of us who felt so inclined to lick it as well. <laughs> he said the salt had antibacterial properties, so we would all be fine licking it. Salt does have some antibacterial properties. In fact, salt has been uh, prized over time for its usefulness. It's useful in preserving food, in purifying, in seasoning. It has some medicinal qualities. And some salt, in fact, is necessary for life. Uh, we mostly think about uh, that we eat too much salt, but if you do not get enough salt, you can get very, very ill. We need to have salt for our body's processes. It also has been used uh, for fertilizing fields, different kinds of salts used to fertilize fields. And it has, in certain times, been considered so valuable that it should be the property of the king. And then the king would then dole out salt to his subjects in exchange for their fidelity. So salt is very important and has been very valuable. And it is important in the Bible. And thinking about salt, I, I remembered that one of the helpful ways to think about Scripture is that God speaks to us in Scripture in human language, using words and symbols that people can understand. And so to think about salt and the symbolism of salt in Scripture, it's helpful to know what it would have meant to people at the time when that Scripture was written. We're in our covenant series, uh, and in antiquity, there was this idea of a covenant of salt. If you remember from our previous sermons on covenant, the basic premise of a covenant is that it's a means of sharing life together. It's an agreement between two people, two groups of people, that they are going to share their lives. There's different kinds of covenants. Sometimes they're treaties um, between two parties to be at peace. Uh, Dale talked last week about a suzerain treaty about where there was a more powerful kingdom and a less powerful kingdom, and the more powerful kingdom would give protection in exchange for goods and taxes and things. Sometimes our most common one that we think of is the marriage covenant. But they all have in common their agreement that lives will be shared together. And in ancient times, in Greek, Roman, Hebrew society, um, and possibly even farther back, people would seal a covenant in salt. So a covenant of salt isn't its own covenant. It's a way of signing and sealing a covenant. And a covenant of salt, when two parties sealed a covenant together, was an 
unalterable, permanent covenant. I think this is because symbolically, well, real scientifically, salt cannot be destroyed by fire or by time or by any means known in antiquity. So salt would have been a good symbol for something that stood the test of time and could not be destroyed. So it was permanent. It was unalterable. Salt is still salt. And these two parties, two people, would sit down together at a covenant meal to um, symbolize that they were in agreement on this covenant and they would have salt. Salt sometimes at the table in a little dish, but salt also would sometimes be recognized as being present in the bread. So the eating of the salt together says that these two parties are now in a permanent covenant agreement with one another. The covenant of salt comes up three times in the Bible. The first one and the second one, Leviticus and Numbers, we heard in our reading. And the third one is in 2 Chronicles, and I just didn't have Chuck read it because it uh, it's too long. <laughs> it makes the service long. Still important, though, because in 2 Chronicles, it is referring to David's kingship and his lineage as being a covenant of salt. David's kingship and his descendants are in a permanent kingship, which becomes important for us when we're talking about Jesus and him being in the line of David. Today, though, I'm mostly going to focus on Leviticus and this idea of salt with a grain offering in Leviticus. Leviticus is a book in the Hebrew Scriptures that is a book of priestly instructions. Instructions for worship, instructions for the priests and doing their duties. And the name comes from the Levites, the tribe that was the priestly tribe. And we heard about Aaron and his descendants being in a permanent salt covenant as being the priests. And that their portion, because they didn't get a portion of the land, was all the offerings that the Hebrews brought. They could take a portion of those as their inheritance. All the ancient Hebrews, the ancient Israelites in, in uh, this time of Leviticus made offerings. And if you remember, there were all kinds of offerings that people made for all different kinds of purposes. One of them was a grain offering, an offering of cereal goods. And this offering made in grain may have been to express their dependence on God. Because previously, these ancient Israelites had been wandering in the desert for, oh, 40 years, for a while. And when they were in the desert, they were utterly dependent upon God for their food for their grain. The manna from God was their grain that they ate. But then they are a settled people. They can grow their own grains. 
might be easy to forget that dependence on God for food, if you are planting your own food and it's growing, you might forget that maybe you're not the only one involved in the growing of this food. So the grain offering may have been to, uh, for the Israelites to have an opportunity to express that they remembered their dependence on God. And then in all these grain offerings, they were to offer salt as part, to remember the covenant of salt, God's covenant of salt. They were always to add this to their grain offering. And this was to remember that God had made an eternal covenant with them as a people. And because God had made an eternal covenant with them, they were to uphold their end of the covenant. They were obligated to the commandments that were handed down at Sinai. So the grain offering with the salt helps them to express and remember that they are dependent on God and that God is in an eternal covenant relationship with them. And when we think about these Hebrew scriptures, we can remember that these were Jesus' scriptures. These would be the ones that Jesus knew. These are the ones that Jesus taught from, the Hebrew scriptures. And as a human, his time with humanity, he came from this culture also that would have been doing offerings of grain with salt. So Jesus probably would have known this law, known these grain offerings made with salt. And Jesus himself talks about salt. You may have heard other sermons about you are the salt of the earth or read other books about this particular passage. And all that symbolism about purification, about seasoning, about fertilizing that other authors uh, come up with in that symbolism about salt still stands. But I think it's, it's interesting to look at Jesus's words in the context of a covenant of salt as well. Jesus makes this statement about salt in the Sermon on the Mount. So we have Jesus on the mountain. He's seated teaching his disciples. Crowds gather around, but he's speaking mainly to his disciples. And the Sermon on the Mount is a collection of teachings. And it's uh, one way to summarize it is that the sermon is about what life is like after repentance. After repentance and commitment to God. And it's about a shift in lifestyle and values and motives where you, as a disciple, put God first in your life. So Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. So if the salt in a grain offering is to be a reminder of God's eternal covenant and the disciples are the salt of the earth, 
then maybe the disciples are to be the reminder of God's covenant to the people of the earth. In the context of this Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is talking about a shift in lifestyle, living as if the kingdom is now, living a different kind of life, the disciples as the salt are to be the ones demonstrating that different kind of life. Putting God first in their motives and in their actions, essentially being the salt of the earth, using themselves to point to the covenant, to be reminders of the covenant, to be a meaningful influence on the people of the earth. Then we have the second part about what if salt loses its saltiness? How will it become salty again? I think this is about if, y- if your role as a disciple is to be a meaningful influence um, in, in, on earth, to live life putting God first, huh, it might be easy to start thinking um, that you're doing good things and you're the one bringing all the meaning and forgetting about the grace of God and then you lose your saltiness. But this question about losing your salt, how does salt lose its, what's it exactly? If salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? Is how I ended up thinking about eighth grade science class. Because we had this cube of salt that got passed around from student to student. Who knows how many hundreds of students over how many years touched this piece of salt? How many of them licked this salt? (laughs) I did not lick the salt. (laughs) But I wonder if you did lick the salt, if salt would be the first thing you tasted. (laughs) Yes, it's been passed around all the grubby little hands of the eighth graders lit by the students. You could say it's been corrupted. Its main essence is still there. It's still salt. But that's maybe not its first flavor. I think for the disciples then and and now, us now, if our call is to be a meaningful influence, The question is, where are we drawing our meaning from? It's not from ourselves. We are called to draw our meaning from God. If we want to go with the salt metaphor, the seasoning in our lives should come from God. If we are meant to be salt, We are not meant under our own power to do good works and spread meaning. We are called to do good and spread meaning that points to God in Christ. The truth is that we are all a little grubby. We have all been influenced by the world. It rubs off on us. Our essence may still be there, but we've got a little dirt 
on us. I did also look up if salt really is antibacterial when I was thinking about this. It is, but it does not kill all the germs. So there were a lot of germs on that salt probably <laughs> too. We all have that, that um, corruption, shall we say. But the good news is that we don't depend on ourselves to stay salty. We stay salty by staying in relationship with God in Christ. This morning, we are celebrating, remembering World Communion Sunday. And communion is one of the ways in which we remember our relationship with God in Christ. And as you heard from Kent, churches around the globe celebrate this common practice. We may not agree on a lot. Sometimes our scriptures are different. Sometimes our beliefs, our theology are different. But we agree on this the Lord's Supper. And we mark that it is a shared practice. And in communion, we, we take this bread and we remember Jesus' life-giving act. But we also can go farther back. Because the bread is like our grain offering. Our bread is baked with salt. The bread is a reminder that we are dependent on God. And we too are in eternal covenant relationship with God. We take the bread, when we eat the bread, we also remember that our covenant is an eternal one. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we share our life with one another and with Christ. In Christ, with Christ, through Christ. In my sermon, there was a lot of research, academics. I like that stuff makes it more meaningful to me to know about the salt and all of that stuff. But you don't have to know that for communion to be meaningful. Because the meaning in the communion comes through the power of the Holy Spirit to us. It is God's gift of grace to us when we remember Christ's life-giving act. In fact, the disciples, if you'll remember, on the road to Emmaus, encountered the risen Lord. And he said things that they did not understand. They came together over a shared meal. And Jesus he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks to God. 
and then the disciples. They recognized him in the breaking of the bread. Friends, this is the joyful feast of the people of God. They will come from north and south and east and west and sit at table in the kingdom of God. Our Savior invites all who trust in him to share in this joyful feast which he has prepared. The gifts of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This morning, before we receive our communion, I would like to invite our parents of kindergarten through fourth graders to head on upstairs for our family experience. Dale is upstairs, ready to offer communion to you families that will be up there so you won't miss out on our shared meal. And now, as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper, let us sing together. <laughs> 